This is an ABC podcast. For 21 years, David Halpern was a New South Wales country magistrate in towns such as Dubbo, Brewarrina and Lismore. For most of his working life, David was the only magistrate in town. That meant he was the coroner, the children's court judge and the person handling all of the domestic violence, assault, robbery, drug and driving offences. The workload was intense and life on the bench could be lonely. On Monday morning, David might have 90 people lined up outside his courtroom, waiting for him to administer justice. During his time in the job, he had death threats, people trashing the dock after being refused bail, and others who hopefully addressed him as Your Majesty. And despite being the one doling out the sentences, he never got used to locking people up. Hi, David. Hello. What made you first fall in love with the law as a student? Well, I actually wanted to be a vet. Um, But in those days, if you missed out by one mark, that was it. And I missed out. So law was the second option. So after I missed out on vet science, I thought, well, I'll give law a go. And the very first lecture was um, by Dave Weisbrot, um, who's a bit of a legend in the legal sphere in Australia. And he started the lecture by describing the case of Dudley and Stevens, which is a shipwreck case where they eat the cabin boy what? instead of starving. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Well, the ship sunk and they got into a, a, a boat, a lifeboat, and as they were drifting about in the ocean, uh, the cabin boy got very sick and they all started starving and dying of thirst. So they drew straws to determine who would kill the cabin boy They killed him, ate him, and survived. And as a result of that, they were charged with murder and when they were rescued, and they raised the defence of necessity. It was necessary to kill the cabin boy so we could all survive, and he was going to probably die anyway. That defence was thrown out, and that became the leading case, and still is that necessity is no defence to murder. I was so intrigued by this case and the beautiful way which Dave Weisbrock described it over the course of about half an hour that I I leapt out of that lecture thinking I've made the right choice. Law is all about moral dilemma and violence and death and destruction and all things that are exciting to a a 19-year-old boy. Was it also about justice? Was it also about holding people to account who'd done something like kill a, a cabin boy who quite frankly may or may not have been dying. I mean, we don't, he's not here to ask, is he? That's, that's very true. It was about justice. And of course, these people needn't have said anything, but they thought they were justified. So they did when they were rescued. And then they were sentenced in the old Bailey to, uh, to death for their crime. Instead, they got transported to Australia. So it is about justice and about that sort of exquisite dilemma that occurs every day to to lock people up or not to lock them up, to find them guilty or not find them guilty. How were you supporting yourself financially when you were a university student? Uh, Most of the time it was was on farms and managing farms. We, um, We lived in some very cold farmhouses uh, one in particular in a little town called Tarana, where we managed a, about a 3,000-acre sheep and cattle property and had a little baby at the time and uh, a big open fire, fortunately. But that's that's basically how I got myself through. Had you grown up in the country, David? Um, when I was 11, uh, my parents moved... We, we moved to Bathurst to a farm. I think my parents were sick of the city and sick of city life, and so we moved to a farm uh, and... Uh, yeah, we had um, uh, cattle and uh, ran ran it as a as a property, as well as both my parents having outside jobs. What did your dad's family think about him buying a farm and moving you all out to the country? Well, my dad's family were from uh, survivors from the Holocaust to Australia, and um, I can remember that specifically them saying to my father, "You're moving to the country. You're buying a farm. Do do you want to be a peasant?" <laughs> They just—it was completely beyond their comprehension why, why anyone would want to, to engage in such madness. You know, Melbourne and Sydney are bad enough, but Bathurst, come on! That's exactly right. <laughs> it, it's the middle of nowhere. <laughs> One of your first jobs after you graduated was in Nimbin. What was the town like in the 1980s? Um, look, it was a marvelous place. We we moved there with uh, by then two young children and. Uh, it was the most child-focused place that uh, 
that we'd ever visited or, or lived in. And it was marvellous for that reason. Nobody went to parties or movies or restaurants or anywhere without their kids. Um, and it was obviously Nimmin had been, by the time we moved there in about 80, 87, it had become well established as the hippie centre. Uh, but it was also a town divided. Um, the, the police were uh, extraordinarily zealous on drug offences. And uh, I built up a practice almost exclusively representing people charged with cannabis offences. And that was that led to, obviously, a lot of community angst and a lot of people going to jail. Were you part of that drug culture personally? Was that a scene that resonated for you and, and your partner? It was for me. Um, I, I had no bones in admitting that I had been and was a recreational cannabis smoker during that time and quickly became part of the law reform movement in Nimbin uh, surrounding an organisation called Nimbin Hemp and the Hemp Embassy, which um, really fought against the drug laws and promoted medicinal cannabis. What was the Mardi Gras festival that you helped organise? Well, it's really a law reform festival and I and two others were the uh, initiators of it. Um, and uh, it's been going every year since. And it really, it was a, uh, a poke in the eye to through the law by saying cannabis should be legalised and here's all the things we're going to do. So there was a, uh, a joint rolling competition and bong throwing competitions and I guess there was just too many people who came there for them to anticipate doing mass arrests. It would have been a riot. So um, that, that was the idea of the festival and also to educate and... Um, promote responsible use and and medicinal use of cannabis. How did you hold that contradiction personally, David? On the one hand, you're there as a lawyer to uphold the law and the law is this substance is illegal while also participating in, in those sort of festivals and that kind of effort. I mean, did it feel like a contradiction or is that how the law plays out in practice? Uh, look, I think the role of lawyers... Uh, is, is is partly to represent people, but I think also we have a particular role and function of speaking out against laws that are wrong. Um, and as well as as well as the cannabis law reform, I was involved in the uh, environmental uh, law movement, uh, assisting and representing people who were at blockades for, against forests on the north coast. We started an organisation called Lawyers for Forests to attend and observe. And I think it's a really important role for lawyers, particularly in rural and regional areas where there's not that sort of, you know, other people to speak out like the union movement and things like that are, are not so active. So I, I very much took on board that one of the functions of a, of a country lawyer was to speak out where I believed laws were wrong. And when it was cannabis laws, this was affecting a significant number of people uh, that I knew, friends, family, uh, and leading them, leading them to prison. Tell me a story of one of your clients from those days who wanted your help in buying a property. It's just so classic that those who are on the edge of that society, I mean, at that time, cannabis was the biggest cash crop in the area. I mean, bigger than, than any of the other rural industries, that's for sure. Daring was dying, cane prices were low. So he came to me and said, look, I, I want to buy this property. And I said, well, it's $20,000. And this is, this is how it works, you know, there's contracts, we fill them in, they're exchanged. And he says, just stop there, David, bugger that. You just tell me when it's finished. And he just gave me the $20,000 in a plastic bag, which I then put into my pocket. And then I had to go to Sydney that evening for something else. So I jumped on the plane, got to Sydney. And only when I got to Sydney airport did I realise, A, I had $20,000 in my pocket and B, there was a dog wagging its tail, sniffing at me with a policeman saying, you know, what have you got in your pockets? And I'm thinking, it's the money. So I grabbed the money out and showed him the money and and uh, he opened the plastic bag and it just reeked of cannabis. So one can only imagine that these were the proceeds of some particular crime. Fortunately, I had a receipt that I'd given him um, and uh, at some bits of paper and uh, they laughed at me and let me go. But <laughs> yes, that was pretty typical of the era. I've got to say, if I had $20,000 in my pocket, I don't think I'd forget it was there. I know there's jokes about how much lawyers are paid, but... Well, of course, it wasn't my money. It was his <laughs> and it was going to the property owner. But uh, uh, yes, it was very much a uh, hand-to-mouth existence in those days. How did losing your mobile phone one time cause you to lose a client? 
Uh, well, I left my uh, mobile phone in a phone booth because I was not in a zone of reception and I got the number off my phone and made the call and left my mobile phone in the phone booth at Nimbin. Um, and then when I realised, I thought, I've lost my phone. I went back and someone had kindly left a note saying phone at police station. So I went to the police station. When I went there, the police were just laughing their heads off saying, is this your phone, David? And I go, yes, it's my phone. And they go, well, it's so funny because this guy just rang about 20 minutes ago and said, the police are at my door. I'm about to get busted. What should I do? <laughs> to the police and who'd answered the, the phone. To the police who just answered <laughs> the phone. And I said, well, what did you tell him? And they said, well, we told him what to do. We told him to let the police in, be totally cooperative, tell them everything. <laughs> and there I am thinking, oh, my Lord. So that was uh, the end of that client, really. <laughs> It was, it was what had happened to one of your clients after he was sent to jail for a cannabis-related offence that got you investigating prisons and what life was like for, for men inside prisons. What did you uncover? Uh, this young man had come down from Queensland and had been engaged in a heist at Punnable Falls Community taking, taking money that was drug money. Um, and he'd been locked up by the time I represented him for a couple of weeks. And he told me that he was being sexually abused while he was in jail and he desperately wanted me to get him bail. Um, and uh, he was frightened that this would continue. I did my best to get him bail, but uh, was unsuccessful. He returned to jail and uh, eventually he, he killed himself. And at that time, uh, Michael Yabsley, who was the Corrective Services Minister, was confronted about this death in particular. And he said, look, rape is inevitable in prison. I was so outraged by that comment that I started researching and the internet was very new, but uh, from what I could see, there had been no studies in Australia whatsoever of the rate of sexual assault of young prisoners. Similarly, in America, there'd been some really interesting uh, studies that had been done, but nothing, nothing on a large scale. So by then I was a, a lecturer at Southern Cross Uni and I thought this would make an amazing research project and maybe highlighting this could lessen it. So I started researching it and uh, corrective services were entirely cooperative and allowed me to interview 300 prisoners aged 18 to 25, which at that time was about 20% of that prison population, about whether they'd been sexually assaulted in prison, whether they'd been assaulted other than sexually. And yes, one in three of them had been sexually assaulted while they were in prison. Were you shocked um, by that, by one in three? I was deeply shocked. I was also... Obviously, as some of the interviews I did myself, others the welfare officers, but those interviews I did myself were heart-wrenching. I mean, these men, had most of them had never spoken about this before. They, uh, some of them were, were very ill-educated and thought that this meant that they were gay uh, because they'd been raped, and they were terrified of that. They were terrified that any members of their family would find out. There was an enormous amount of shame. And um, it was a method, what was, what was most shocking to me was that this was a method of survival for young prisoners. In other words, if you cosied up to a particular guy, uh, then you are likely to be safer while you're in custody. And I found it enormously shocking and distressing. And at that time, in that, in that prison population, that cohort, about uh, al almost half were in there for drug offences. So, you know, it, a non-violent crime being met with such an incredibly violent response, that had lifelong impacts, obviously, for the victims, uh, whilst in an institution where we expect people to be protected, was, was really uh, horrendous and affronting. And I suppose, um, you know, my, my love of the law had been dented by drug offences, but it really got shaken up by... By, by this phenomena, and I ended up writing a book, uh, doing my master's thesis, and then writing a book on the topic, uh, which um, was the first book, and still to this day, I think, is the only book on sexual assault of prisoners. Have there been changes? Have you seen any improvement over that situation, say, in Australian prisons in the in the years that you've worked in the law? Look, the the. Um, the research would say that it has improved, and I think the truth is that the technology has improved significantly um, to enable a much greater rate of surveillance um, that had occurred uh, back in the 80s. I mean, CCTV 
etc. But the real answer to the question is who knows, because the research just is not being done. The studies that have been done on sexual violence since then would tend to suggest there's been a decrease. Um, anecdotally, uh, I still get emails from, from people who want to tell me their stories. You were living this interesting life as a legal academic. Why then, when you were offered the job of a magistrate in Dubbo, did you say yes? Well, I, I'd seen a lot of magistrates. Um, some of them were fantastic. There was one in particular in Lismore, Phil Molan, uh, who, who really inspired me to see what a great magistrate in a country area can do. He became involved in the Aboriginal community. He, he was not afraid to speak his mind about silly policing practices. Um, he was compassionate and caring. Um, he sentenced in a way that I'd not seen before in, in terms of creative sentencing to ensure wherever possible people didn't go to jail. And on the other hand, there were some really, really bad magistrates who treated domestic violence as nothing and drink driving as nothing but, you know, one speck of cannabis and you went to jail. Um, and I thought, well, I can do, I can aspire to do as well as Phil Molan and, and uh, aspire never to fall into the traps of those poor magistrates. And I thought that uh, I, I should give it a go. What is a magistrate? Is it, is it another term for judge, David? Traditionally, they come from different arms. Our magistrates come from administrative arm, and judges come from the judicial arm of, of the of government. But since about 1975, all magistrates have had law degrees and have been appointed in a similar fashion to judges. So really, um, it's it's just a judge by any other name, and it's confusing because Australia is one of the few places in the world that hasn't replaced the term magistrate with judge. But suffice it to say, it's the lowest the lowest of the hierarchy of the judicial officers and all cases start in the magistrate's court. So even murders and sexual assaults and uh, the most serious of crimes all start in the magistrate's court. But after a preliminary process and bail and a committal hearing, most of the serious matters go up to the higher courts. But that leaves 95% of all the other matters um, in the local court. This, this role of magistrate that you took on in 1999 was based in Dubbo. What were your first impressions of, of Dubbo when you arrived there with your family? The overwhelming sense was the number of Aboriginal people that were coming before the courts. Um, and uh, I had a circuit and that circuit included far western uh, towns, um, places like Cobar and uh, Warren and Wellington. Um, and... In some of those towns, there was literally no non-Aboriginal people appearing on list days. And certainly in many of those towns, there was no uh, non-Aboriginal young people ever appeared in the, in the three or four years I spent out there. So the, the institutionalised racism or the racial bias of those courts was just, it hit me. I'd read about it. Of course, you hear about it, uh, but I hadn't seen it. And when you do a list day in a town and the only legal representative is the Aboriginal Legal Service. It hits you uh, how extraordinary that really is. Tell me about travelling back from Brewarana one day with a boy that you had ordered to be locked up. Well, I'd been staying in Brewarana regularly and there was a lovely little plaque which said, this is the oldest man-made structure in the world in front of the fish traps at Brewarana. And, uh, you know, I, I Googled that and indeed, you know, there was a lot of evidence that, that that's the case. We're talking tens of thousands of years old. So I was in Brewarana one day and uh, I got told there's no transport for young people. You can't refuse any young people bail. Lo and behold, there was a young person who was so out of control uh, and violent and self and, and violent to himself and others that he really just had to be locked up. Um, and I refused him bail. And then I got on the plane to fly back, which was like a six-seater. And there he, he was with a policeman sitting behind him and he was handcuffed to the, to the handrail, the, the ha handle above the window. And I sat next to him on the other side of the aisle thinking, well, this is great, great, great magistrating. So I said hello and he was, he was very quiet and head down. Um, and then we started to take off and I saw that he was shaking and I said, have you been in a plane before? And he goes, no, never. 
And uh, I said, have you been to Dubbo before? And he said, no, never. And then as the plane started taking off, he started gagging and I'm holding the vomit bag under him and looking out the window as the plane's taking off. And there beneath me were, were the fish traps. And I just thought this uh, freeze frame, this sums up everything that is wrong with the entire criminal justice system. And uh, at, at that moment with the incredible heritage and learnings to be had from, from the fish traps, and what we were doing to Aboriginal young people, locking them up and putting them on planes and vomiting while the magistrate holds the vomit bag. It was just, it was just uh, one of those scenes that have stayed in my mind as symbolic of, of, uh, of that job, really. Did moments like that make you question the value of, of the work that you were doing? Continuously. I, I never really felt comfortable there. And I started writing about it uh, really early on about uh, Aboriginal overrepresentation uh, and publishing uh, material about it. Not that I was the first to do that. You know, academics had been doing it for a long time, as had a, a lot of First Nations activists. Um, but it did make me really value. I mean, was I part of the solution or part of the problem? And I guess that's for others others to decide. But I continually questioned my role um, and never never felt uh, comfortable about obviously locking people up. How did you start trying to shake things up from the bench then, David? Like what happened around the case uh, Police versus Butler? Tell me about that one. Well, that was a case where a young man had a push bike that the police suspected he had either taken or, or had bought and it had been stolen. So they approached him and said, you know, whose bike is it? Give us the bike. And he said, you're not effing having it. Well, he didn't say effing, you can imagine. And they said, you're under arrest. Then there was a struggle as the usual situation that occurred, a struggle which is used to be known as the trifecta where the charges are offensive language and resist police and assault police. There was a violent struggle. He was, he was injured, he was taken into custody and he fronted me in court with a charge of offensive language. And how common was it that someone come in on a charge of offensive language? Literally dozens every day. Um, it was uh, incredibly common. It was the standard charge for those who were giving lip. Um, and I, I guess that language uh, in my encounters with the Aboriginal community and the white community and my own community, um, whether it was Nimbin or Bathurst or as a uni student, you know, this, this language was so commonplace, but it was criminalised um, for Aboriginal people in particularly in country areas. And the lawyer, Mark Dennis, who from the Aboriginal Legal Service, who was appearing before me, said, look, I ask you to find that this is not offensive. I, I don't think it's offensive. It just doesn't fit within that category. Unlike some jurisdictions, there's no list. It's up to the court's discretion as to what words are offensive or not, according to the common uh, uh, characteristics of the day. And I just, I totally agreed. So I wrote a fairly lengthy judgment saying that, you know, this word is so common. Used, uh, I think we'd also just gone through the Police Royal Commission. And I don't know if you remember those videos of police. I mean, the language in those videos was like every second word. And for them to be so hypocritically arresting people for doing what they were doing themselves. So I threw it out and, to say the least, it garnered some publicity. What, what kind of publicity did it garner? Oh, um, the news, 60 Minutes, did a whole thing on it. The police commissioner weighed in, the police minister weighed in, the local member, the local paper. Uh, there was general outrage that somebody would be such a judicial activist as to throw out uh, these words. I wasn't the first either. Pat O'Shane, a First Nations magistrate, had had done the same thing uh, without success in Lismore some years before. But this seemed to capture the moment. And um, yes, there was TV cameras talking outside my house and the whole works. What kind of legacy has that ruling had, David? I'm pleased to say that since that time and uh, a follow-up case that I did in bigger a couple of years later, that there's been a slow decline in that charge appearing before the court for that, for that reason. And I guess that the, the police copped a bit of a caning over, over that because, um, you know, there was editorials and things in support and against. But I think, 
um, that it did change things. And there's been some, some good academic studies since that have a graph and that graph goes down from, uh, from that point. So it, it was a, an important decision on that, on that case. And I was forever known as the F magistrate. <laughs> did your kids tease you for that? Uh, yes, they did. <laughs> they did. I, I suppose having the initials DH as well just didn't help. <laughs> Though it's still an offence to use offensive language at police, isn't it? Because there are still cases each year you, you see reports about often young, often Aboriginal kids being arrested for using swear words. So it still is something that, that people are being arrested and sentenced for. It is but in very small numbers. I suppose the other thing about the arrests was it didn't carry a term of imprisonment. So even if people swore, then they were being arrested and their liberty was being deprived um, for something for which the courts could never deprive their liberty for. So it was just, it, it was crazy. But look, it's a lot less now. And I, I hope that in time, the entire offence just disappears. In the end, they're just words. Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. How many cases would you typically deal with in court on a Monday morning? What scene would greet you as you walk towards the courtroom? Generally, Monday is a list day for almost all courts, and that means they're not hearing days where evidence is heard. They're days where, you know, because you've got all the custodies from the weekend. So the last 10 years I sat in Lismore, and I would say on average there would have been 10 to 15 people in custody wanting to apply for bail, plus a list of up to 100, sometimes 120 matters, but probably on average 80 to 90 um, and they were individual people with, with sets of charges who were pleading guilty or not guilty or needed to be sentenced or granted bail or apprehended violence orders or the like. I know that there've been, uh, there's been publicity around research recently that looks at how decision-making is impaired by whether we've eaten or not. And they always give the example of a judge is likely to give harsher sentences before lunch than after lunch. I don't know if that was your direct experience, but how did you keep your attention uh, you know, with that kind of workload of case after case after case, each case being hugely important to the individuals before you, but just part of your of roster to get through. What, what was it like managing that workload? It's it's uh, it was described to me early on as like putting your mouth over a fire hydrant, and that's that's a great analogy because that's what it's like. And I suppose the kinds of factors that impacted on my focus and ability were were yes, whether you'd eaten or not but also whether you'd had an argument with someone on your way to work or, or whether you were just feeling tired and, and uh, run down and all, all of those factors. It's a very human system. And where you're dealing with those numbers, I mean, in a sensible world, there would not be those numbers week in, week out. Because the truth is, I don't think, if you divide up the number of minutes in a sitting day with the number of people appearing before you, they're getting pretty short-term justice. And, you know, in sensible jurisdictions, uh, uh, Victoria is one of them, they, they have some limits on the number of cases per day, um, whereas ours very much is driven by, uh, driven by the numbers of people who are appearing before the court. Of course, the numbers of magistrates make a difference, and the chief magistrate throughout my career on the bench was always keen to lessen the workload as much as possible, but it's the nature of the job, I guess. What are the, the different ways that defendants behaved towards you? Well, ICE made a big difference because up until ICE, um, I, I had very rarely been abused. I did refuse bail to someone once and he said to me, as he was leaving the dock, he said to me, ah, oh, you fat C. And I was so deeply offended, I had him put back in the dock and I said to him, did you call me fat? <laughs> I mean, really? Everybody laughed. But look, so but once ice once ice came along, it was a really different kettle of fish because we were getting a lot of people who were terribly disturbed at being refused bail or being locked up. 
and uh, would behave terribly. We had in Lismore Court, we had three, at least three who jumped the dock and I had never had that before. Uh, so for the first 15 years of my job, no one jumped the dock and then it was a really regular occurrence and terrible things happened. Of course, people would jump out of the dock and they'd attack sheriffs or jump over the balcony in one case, injuring their back severely. Things started getting out of hand and uh, the, uh, the court services recognised the problem and had to put in a huge glass dock around the dock that I call the ice glass. Um, just for that reason, um, it really uh, changed the nature of, of what happened in court and people became incredibly abusive. And was that because people were affected by ice in the courtroom yes. or because the threat of not having access to the drug was so terrifying? I, I think both. Um, you know, they'd been locked up overnight. They had a really serious intravenous ice habit and, uh, and you know, things deteriorated. And, you know, within a week they were back to their normal, polite, nice self when they appeared in court, obviously getting refused bail. But it was, it certainly changed the, uh, changed the atmosphere of the court. Is it true, David, that some, some people would refer to you as your majesty? Did you hear that? Oh, yes. I was called your holiness, your majesty, <laughs> your most honourableness. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, and, you know, we laugh, but in a way it was kind of cute because people are trying to be respectful as best they could. And for, for us who work in the courts every day, we're used to the lingo, we're used to the language. For some people, this is their only experience and, uh, but yes, you get called all sorts of things uh, with people just try, trying to do the right thing. What about fear, David, particularly for people who this might be their first experience in a courtroom, they might be young. Is that something that was palpable to you on, on the other side of the bench? Oh, totally. Um, and, you know, for many people in the local court, it's the fear of losing their driver's licence that is just overwhelming. In the country, the loss of licence generally means, you know, loss of job, loss of contact with family, loss of ability to pay the mortgage, to maintain relationships with your kids you might not live with. These are, it's really catastrophic for people often losing their licence and people would appear at court, yes, terrified. Similarly, women appearing at court, largely women in, uh, in apprehended domestic violence matters where they're the victim, particularly before the occurrence of the support of sort of support services we have. They'd be there alone. They'd be there waiting in the room with the perpetrator um, and they'd appear before the court, you know, un unable to speak, shaking in terror. And uh, that, you know, fortunately, that doesn't happen nearly as often now as it, as it certainly did then. When the law demanded that someone be locked up, did that ever feel right or, or normal for you? What's it like to leave your workplace knowing that you've sent someone off to jail? I, I never felt easy with it. I never slept easy with it. Um, and, you know, many defence lawyers and prosecutors have said to me, I'd, I'd never go on the bench, I couldn't do that to people. And I, I really get that. Um, sometimes, rarely, uh, there was no choice. But often, if there was other options that were available or viable, if there was more intense rehabilitation or supervision available, uh, if their lives could be turned around any other way, then uh, I would have chosen that. But often services in the country just aren't there. There's sometimes there's no community service available. Sometimes the supervision is so inept that uh, that it's going to be worthless for people. But it certainly uh, never sat easy with me. What were you like when you got home? What would you do to to, to switch from that role to? To being well, at home. There's a beautiful scene in Oliver Twist where that lawyer, I forget his name, he washes his hands and he washes them pathologically after court. And that's, uh, you know, I would I would make a rule of never wearing my uh, my suit uh, home. I'd always just get changed in chambers and leave and try and shed that skin uh, before before I got home. But but you know, more often than not, I'd get home and uh, I was shattered really by the wealth, the amount of work, uh, the nature of the work, the experiences I had, and that only increased after the Royal Commission into uh, sexual abuse because the number of cases of sexual abuse just uh, skyrocketed. How young were some of the people appearing before you? Uh, well, uh, often they couldn't be seen above the dock. Like literally, you know, you'd have to get them a a stool or let them stand on a chair so you could see them. 
And in my mind's eye, there was not one of those who was not a First Nations young person. Um, and when Aboriginal kids are appearing before you at 10 and 11 and 12, and they're the same age as your kids, it's incredibly confronting. And, uh, and very often those young people had nowhere to go, uh, no bail options, and uh, had to be refused, refused bail so they'd be taken into custody. What did you wish you could offer those kids or what do you wish the law could offer kids of 10, 12 who are, are appearing in court? In every case, there was other options if there'd been proper support services available, in every case. Of course, you're not meant to refuse people because they've got nowhere to live. But the truth is, if they've got nowhere to live, what are you going to do? Release them, release them into custody to go onto the street to re-offend? Um, and it's this catch-22 that everyone knows exists and very few people talk about. But my wife and I had been foster parents for, for years before I was appointed, and I knew, and I still know, that for almost every one of those young people, there are better options than, than being locked up in a detention centre full of uh, young men, really, um, full of people who are aged, you know, 16, 7, 18, how safe is it for 12-year-olds in that environment? You know, for, for every one of those young people, if you assume that, and I think it's about right, that it costs about $150,000 to $200,000 a year to have them locked up, and you pro-rata that down to days, you can imagine that there are much, much better options for young people uh, than being locked up for the same amount of money that are much more likely long-term to lead to rehabilitation. It must be a devastating thing for a parent to accompany their child to court. Would you think about what it was like for the, the parents of the, the young men and women before you? Absolutely. And I wrote an article shortly after being appointed to the bench saying that, you know, Australia Day Awards are such a joke. These parents who continually stand by their kids, these really, many of them really troubled uh, young people, they're the ones who ought to be getting the AOs and the the awards, not not uh, the military and the judges. But uh, yes, these parents, you know, by and large, they were loving, caring parents who were way out of their depth or had their own trauma or their own domestic violence situations going on and therefore the kids were just acting out. Uh, but I, I really respected them and always always paid tribute to the parents whenever I, whenever I could in court. Sometimes those parents become proxy jailers if, if a child is given a, a stay-at-home order. How does that work in practice? How difficult is that? You know, I mean, we anyone with teenage kids know that uh, if, you, if you had bail conditions commanding that child not to leave home without you and to be there 24-7 for a period of months while they're waiting for their court tavern, it would be a recipe for absolute disaster. And these days, often those orders are accompanied by not to be on social media or use any of those things. And, and then there's curfew checks by the police, you know, two or three times a week, they'll knock on the door and make sure the kids are there. I mean, what a recipe for a disaster. The parents must just be looking at themselves going, what have I done? And when they're households with other tensions and stresses, I mean, there's often a good reason young people are out on the street committing crimes. It may be because home is not safe or not the best environment for them. Yet our first port of call is to bail young people to just be at home and not leave without their parents. It's a recipe for disaster. Being a magistrate, having a big job like that in a country town, everyone's going to know you and I'm guessing everyone's going to have an opinion about the job that you're doing. Did, uh, did people give you that feedback, David? Without hesitation, at the checkout at the supermarket, the, uh, the people were very keen to ensure that I didn't lock up their boyfriend. You're not going to lock my boyfriend up, are you? And I wouldn't have a clue who they're talking about. And when you buy a newspaper at the newsagents, the newsagent would be telling me that I didn't lock this person up long enough. And then there's your friend, your kids' friends, whose parents all, all have a view and an opinion about it. And so, yeah, you get a lot of influences. And in Dubbo in particular, there was the Daily Liberal, which was, you know, the local paper that just basically, if, I reckon if I'd locked people up for 20 years, they would have said it should have been 40 did you feel that you had to engage with that or did that bother you or how would you hear all of that? Well, you know, fortunately it was both ways. And also I have to say that um, by and large it was delivered with good cheer. 
it was the same way I guess local politicians get get spoken to you know it's it's like certainly you know 99% of it was delivered with uh, with genuineness and that I should take their view into account and but get on with your job. There were instances where there wasn't good cheer. What sort of threats, serious threats, did you and your family receive? Over the years, quite a lot. And I think when the story of, of judges and magistrates is told, I mean, of course, we all know that judges, that judges have been killed in, in Australia. Um, and the threats uh, were consistent. In Dubbo, for example, there was a bomb put on a courthouse gas bottle uh, when I had refused uh, a man contact with his child. He had taken uh, the child's dog and nail gunned it to the door. And I sort of was pretty condemnatory of that and told him that he wasn't going to be seeing his child anytime soon. And his response was to put a bomb at the courthouse. So until he was caught, uh, myself and my family were had to stay in a secure location and um, uh, those things are taxing on, on, of course, me and my family uh, and also on, on all other magistrates who suffer the same fate. We had uh, someone uh, come and spray paint KKK on our garage door when I was doing a case involving, involving some, some extremely racist people. Those sorts of threats are not uncommon and they make it hard to do your job for two reasons. Number one, because... Of course, you want to put aside those threats when you're dealing with the cases. But number two, because it means you're interacting daily with the police. And they've got this dual role. They're appearing before you as witnesses and their evidence is being challenged. And at the same time, they're part of the, the command that's actually keeping you safe. So it's, it's a difficult position. What were the most difficult crimes that you had to deal with as a magistrate? For me, uh, they were without doubt sexual offences against children. Um, first, uh, there's been a, a tsunami of child pornography cases uh, with the advent of easy access to the internet. And in the early days of those charges, much less so now, fortunately, you, you had to look at all the pictures and assess the seriousness of the offence. And sometimes that was folders and folders and videos and uh, pictures and I, I found that enormously difficult. Um, led to horrendous nightmares and really uh, uh, confronting uh, for me to deal with deal with those sorts of cases. Those and then, of course, there's child sex offences where children are giving evidence before you, and again, those cases are enormously confronting, and uh, you can't. You'd have to be a superhuman not to take that work home with you uh, to some extent. You'd become a granddad too in, in the period that you were dealing with these cases. I mean, I think as a parent you become so much more tender towards the thought of any child being harmed. I think that's an, an inevitable part of becoming a parent. As a grandparent, was, it, was that also the case that you felt, I don't know, super sensitive to the horrors that you were having to be exposed to? Yeah, I, I describe having grandchildren and indeed, of course, having children as a heart-opening experience. And that's really good if you're not working in an environment where having an open heart makes you much more vulnerable to, to uh, vicarious trauma. Um, and yeah, I, I found it enormously difficult on a personal level to deal with that. And I think it creeps up on you. You know, a lot of police say, you know, you can go to 300 car accidents and the 301st and there's kids the same age as your kids. And I can I just couldn't do it anymore. And that was the feeling. the The cup was filling up. Did you talk to anyone about about how that vicarious trauma was progressively affecting you and affecting your life outside of the courtroom? Uh, not not for a long time. Um, I kept it to myself and um, you know my close loved ones, but I certainly didn't seek professional help, and uh, I didn't alert my colleagues or the chief magistrates to as to really what was going on for me. I spoke to a couple of trusted colleagues who were pretty much in the same boat. But I reached a point where I just wasn't sleeping, where um, I think I was being grumpier than I should have been on the bench uh, and at home. And I, I reached a point where, you know, my friends and family really ganged up on me and said, intervention-wise, and said, you know, you, you, you've got to get some help. You've got to stop this. And 
and I did. I uh, I stopped working for a period. I told the chief magistrate. I did a lecture about vicarious trauma, and the judiciary. And you know, overwhelmingly, this not overwhelmingly, exclusively, I, I felt supported and nurtured by my colleagues, uh, by my bosses, by my family and friends. Did other lawyers contact you or, or speak to you about feeling similarly? Yes. Um, it was a bit of a downside, really. I got. I got emails from all over the world, judges and uh, wanting to tell me their terrible stories of woe and the terrible traumatic experience that the experiences that they'd had in the courtroom. And uh, I should say, I think I was the first sitting judicial officer to it, but there'd been quite a few retired uh, members who'd spoken about it. So this was on the agenda, but um, it's certainly much more on the agenda now. And Short answer is uh, uh, many, many people contact me, thousands and thousands as a result. And uh, I think I think that uh, we're much more alert to it now. What helped you reframe the way you thought about your role in relating to the victims who came before you, particularly the, the children, the, the child victims? How did you start thinking about what it was to be a compassionate magistrate? I really learnt... Uh, a lesson through perhaps my my commitment to Buddhism or and from friends and family as well of the difference between empathy and compassion. Empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes and compassion is looking at that person and thinking, I wish they were free from suffering. There really is a key difference between these two things, particularly in the context of vicarious trauma. The first an empathetic response is pretty dangerous, really, if a child is giving evidence about the horrible things that are happening to them and I'm putting myself in their shoes. This is not a good place to be in terms of keeping objectivity, keeping distance, not bursting into tears, uh, not taking the work home. Uh, whereas compassion, that is the thought pattern that you just want these people to be free from suffering, uh, creates a wish or a desire without getting too emotionally involved for me, that was a really important lesson. And once once that twigged, and it, it did, it, it did. Um, I felt able to return to work, and uh, and I did so for another three or four years. Um, and uh, just that process really helped me. And uh, having spoken to other judicial officers, and of course, some people know this innately. That's what I discovered. That some of my colleagues and and people who work in emergency medicine and people who work in frontline police and the like, they know this innately. They, they don't get into the empathy situation. What would it be like if I was in that car wreck? They, they immediately turn to compassion. But for some of us, uh, it's a learning experience and it certainly was for me. It's common for magistrates to stay in, in their job till their mid-70s. Why did you decide to, to leave at, at the, the sprightly, youthful age of 58? I'd, I'd had enough. Uh, I was one of the youngest magistrates ever appointed, if not the youngest. So I'd been on the bench for 21 years by then, nearly 22. And, um, but also the drug driving laws were driving me crazy. Um, uh, I was getting probably 50 a week in Lismore Court charged with, or on my circuit, charged with drug driving offences. And these were people who had minute quantities, largely of cannabis in their system, and there was minimum mandatory uh, disqualification periods for them. And it was leading to enormous distress, obviously, for those who were losing their licence. On the North Coast, cannabis use is fairly endemic and particularly medicinal cannabis. Some of these people had prescriptions for cannabis and yet I was still having to take away their licences. And the percentage and of, of the drug in their system was so minute you didn't think it was impeding their ability to drive safely, is that right? Well, if it was impeding their ability, they would have been charged with another offence, which is driving under the influence. Um, so these were people who demonstrably, and some of them were up to nine days after smoking, it was still detectable at five nanograms in their system. So um, I was confronted with a situation where I was applying a law uh, without any ability to exercise discretion and uh, uh, for, for most of those people. Some of them I could exercise discretion, but for most I could not. And therefore their, their lives were being ruined. And it sat, I was very uncomfortable with it. It's one thing applying a law as compassionately as possible. And it's another thing applying a law that you just think is completely stupid. 
And it was, again, uh, I was finding myself dissatisfied uh, with that sort of work. That young man, David, who fell in love with the drama and the excitement and the promise of justice in the law, how do you feel about the law now? Well, I've, I've returned to practice now and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm working a couple of days a week for a large not-for-profit organisation that uh, deals with young people, uh, young people who are in home, out-of-home care. I'm really enjoying that and fighting for young people's rights. Um, I'm assisting at a, uh, a barefoot law where it's um, coalface law at its best. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it and I think I'm rediscovering my passion for the law uh, and being able to represent people and advise people of the way through this, this maze that is our legal system that for so many people remains really confronting and difficult. So I'm really enjoying it and I'm writing, writing about legal issues, um, publishing on legal issues and all of that uh, has, has really reinvigorated it. I, I, th I thought I'd just want to do nothing, but um, that's not how it works out, I don't think. Maybe it's not too late to enrol in vet science. <laughs> well, you know, my chickens all got eaten by the snake. So <laughs> at the moment, we've only got wildlife here, um, but fairly unsuccessful. I think it's a bit late for vet science. I, th I think I'll just plug on being a, being a coal-faced lawyer for a while. <laughs> David, it's really, really opening to talk to you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.